Y'all can have a seat for just a moment. I got to fix my mic. It just kind of flared out a little bit on me. Uh, So the reason we were getting to these three chapters is because for the past month, we've been doing a study through the book of Judges, the Old Testament book of Judges. And the very last verse of the book is one that, that we've said basically summarizes the whole of it. Judges 21, 25 says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's actually a bit of a refrain that happens throughout the entire book. There's, there's bits and pieces of that verse. In those days, Israel had no king, or everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did as they saw fit. Those are phrases that pop up throughout the book of Judges. And so what it gives us, it gives us a statement. It gives us something that helps us interpret, helps us interact, and help us really understand all the stories that we read in the book of Judges. Routinely, the author is drawing our attention to the fact that a king is missing. And if a king is missing from the land, there's no authority, there's no unity, there's not a sense of justice, there's not a sense of one who can bring and protect the peace that's missing from Israel. So as a result, all the people are doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, the hope was, was that they would relate to God as king, that they would, they, they would submit their lives to him, to his decrees, to his judgments, to his commands, to follow him as king. That should have marked them, that should have helped them live a distinct life. But the Israelites, they looked to all the, how all the other nations were living around them. They looked at all these other people groups and saw how they were following a human king, and they wanted the same thing. And when they didn't have one, they all decided to be their own king and do what was right in their own eyes. So what we have in the book of Judges, it's, it's commentary about the spiritual state of Israel. It's, it's letting us know about the, the spiritual health, rather the spiritual unhealthiness and the dysfunction that is found within Israel during the time of Judges. Remember, they were supposed to be a people that lived in such a way to, well, to where others would know and see and, and, and know that the God of the Israelites is the one true God. Yet instead of living in a distinct different, unique type of way that points to the virtues and the values of the kingdom of God, they were living out the values of the kingdom of man. Instead of bringing the hope of God to all the nations, Israel let the corruption of the nations lead them further away from the Lord and lead them further away from his redeeming work. Judges 19, 20, and 21, those three chapters, they're the ultimate description of this dysfunction. It is messed up from the first word to the last. And honestly, God is noticeably silent. Across these three chapters, we're not going to hear much from God across these three chapters. And so with that, these three chapters, they they cause way more questions than answers. And if we believe that the story is over with the last period, it would be utterly depressing. It would be like, why did I just read this? Why do we spend time here? But... We have to hold on to the truth, have to hold on to the fact, right, that this story is pointing us somewhere. All right, we've talked about this before, how when when you interact with Scripture, you should always do it in a way to where you appreciate the context, right? You don't just drop in and read a verse. You need to know what's happening before it, what's happening after it to help you understand what it is that you're reading. Same thing can happen on, on, on a larger scale in that you need to know what's happening in the books leading before it, what's happening in the current book you're reading, and what's coming up in the books to come. We're going to see these three chapters really connect us 
forward into two other Old Testament books because we need to be mindful that this is leading and pointing us somewhere. Most notably, within the narrative and the history of Israel, Judges points us to King David. King David is the one who will finally be able to fully unify the Israelite people. He will be the one to really establish the kingdom of Israel within the promised land. None of the judges were able to do that. So Judges is pointing us towards David. And then King David is the one who points us to Christ Jesus, the King of Kings, who ushers in the kingdom of God. I, I'm, I just told you how my sermon's going to end, okay? Like, that's the hope we're going towards, right? That's the light at the end of the tunnel. I need you to hold on to it, because Judges 19, 20, and 21, it's going to take us into the depths of darkness, right? The, the, these three chapters show the unchecked sin nature of humanity, and the repercussions of our depravity. And catch this, it's not expressed by the Canaanites. It's not expressed by the Philistines. It's not expressed by those other people. It's expressed by the people of God who are called to steward the hope of the Lord to all the nations. Let's go to Judges chapter 19 for this encouraging text. Judges chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. All right, so there it is. There's the, the first repetition of that refrain that lets us know they don't have a human king. They're not relating to God as king. The author is telling us what we're about to read off the rails, right? This is, is broken from start to finish. Virtually nothing you are about to read is, 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 is redemptive. Nothing that we read is, is the right way of relating to the Lord or, 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 or right expressions of power and, and love, care, and concern. And we're going to see the brokenness really in the back half of verse 1. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Okay, so a couple things. One, a Levite is a priest. A Levite is a priest. They should know the ways of the Lord and know that a concubine is outside of the way that God has called them to live. Now, it was probably more acceptable in the culture, but it was against God's design for how they were to live, how, how they were to function. But nevertheless, this Levite who's a priest takes for himself a concubine. Now, a concubine, is, it's basically his second wife. It would have been a, a slave or a servant girl that he married and kind of elevates in the family, kind of gives, gives her a little bit of a higher rank, but not much because she's still second. She's still secondary to, uh, to his, his, his first wife. But you, you see, you're already starting to hear some of the brokenness, already starting to hear just wrong expressions of power, relationship here. Uh, the Levite takes for himself this concubine. Verse 2. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah, and she had been there four months. Her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there." So she's unfaithful to him. Let me say this. Some of your translations might say that she was angry with him or that she was against him. And I think that might be a little bit of a better translation for us because we don't know why she's unfaithful or how she's unfaithful. Like we don't know, like we hear unfaithful and we think, you know, affair, um, that, that she's having this, this physical uh, affair. We don't know if that's the case. She could have just been angry and left. And that's why she's described as being unfaithful. In fact, uh, the Levite um, in this culture, he could have stoned her uh, if, if she had the physical affair. And so with him going out, kind of pleading, looking for her, pleading for her to come home, lets us know that maybe it wasn't a physical affair per se, but he was just going to try to, uh, I guess, bring back and have a, a reunion with
his second wife or his concubine. Again, broken from start to finish. You're going to hear me say that all over again. But he's going after her. And we do see her um, welcome him in. Like she, she sees him, welcomes him into her father's home. And then we see the father, the father of the woman, the father of the concubine. Uh, concubine. He welcomes the Levite into his home. Uh, he, he welcomes him into the father's home, gladly welcomes the Levite. So much so, if we were to keep reading, we're going to see the Levite like stays for an extended amount of time in the father's home. And I would say this might be one, one of two positive acts that we have across Judges 19, 20, and 21. There's a robust practice of hospitality here, okay? The, 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 the father welcoming in the Levite for three days. In fact, if you keep reading the verses, the, the Levite tries to leave once he wants to go back home, but the father is, is being such a host, he encourages him to stay and, and, and take care of him. He stays two more days. So for a total of five days, he's welcomed in the Levite, hosted him, provided for him, taken care of him, and knew this. This isn't just being polite. Okay, being hospitable is not just like, oh, it's a nice thing to do. You know, it's mismanners. No, like that's not what's happening here. You know, God had commanded his people, commanded his people to practice hospitality. This, this was something that would be expected. And in this culture, hospitality was commanded, expected of one another. To not extend hospitality would bring shame on the host. And, and, and it would make the one, the traveler, it would put them in a vulnerable and an exposed state. And so here, the father practices hospitality until day five, when the Levite is like, finally, look, I've got to go. And, he, and he's determined to leave, but he leaves in the evening. And this is going to prove to be a, a grave and tragic mistake. Verse 10, but unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jabus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they're near Jebus, and the, and the day was almost gone because he left in the evening, the servant said to his master, Come, let us stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gabeah. And so they, they need to stop for the night. The, 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 they need to stop for the night, and they're close to Jerusalem. At this point, Jerusalem has not been... Um, conquered by any of the tribes of Israel. It's not within the lands, uh, not within the control of Israel. So there are no Israelites living in Jerusalem, only the Jebusites, only the people that, that, that were there. And the Levite knows this and he refuses to stop. And yes, this is racist. Yes, this is a religious discrimination. Yes, there, there's ethic. All those tensions are in this moment where you won't stop in, in, in Jebus, when he won't stop in Jerusalem. You see, the Levite, doesn't believe the Jebusites will host him. He doesn't believe that, that they will give him protection. Doesn't believe that they will give him safety. He's scared and he's assuming the worst in the Jebusites. And so he continues on to Gabeah because Gabeah was part of the lands which were part of the tribe of Benjamin. And so there are Israelites in Gabeah. And, and he's like, they're my kinsmen. Surely they will welcome me in. Surely they will protect me. Surely they will give me safety. But look what happens, verse 14. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. Quiet statement to us, loud statement to those in this culture. Loud statement to the initial readers of the book of Judges. No one takes them in for the night. This is sinful. There's no hospitality, no welcoming in the traveler, no welcoming in the sojourner, no welcoming in the one who has no place. 
And so he goes, he stops in the city square, like the most trafficked place, hoping that somebody will see him, have mercy on him, and welcome him into his home. And sure enough, someone does. But it's not somebody from Gabeah. It's actually someone who's moved there. It's an old man from Ephraim. So he's in Gabeah, but not from Gabeah. But he sees him and welcomes him in, has mercy. And, and, and so this might be the second good thing that we have would be another practice of hospitality. But we're going to see very quickly this man's uh, expression of hospitality then is distorted and takes on sinful expressions. Because verse 22 is where the dysfunction really, really, really begins. Verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, so while he's hosting them in his home, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, Here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. Do what's right in your own eyes. Do what you see fit. Do what's right, and you can do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, at daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. Okay, again, you, you can just see the depravity. You can see this broken expressions of, of sin at every turn, right? The men of Gabeah, they not only don't they not want to offer hospitality, they're wanting to abuse, victimize, and assault the Levite and the concubine. You see the cowardly actions of the man who's hosting them and that he's willing to, to to throw his own daughter out the door along with another man's concubine to satisfy the threat at the door. All of this to try to satisfy his obligation of hospitality to protect his male guests, not even thinking about protecting the, the, the females that are in his own home. I mean, just it's such a broken expression. He's, he's, he turns on his own flesh and blood. Meanwhile, the Levite is, is just, it is, is seems like he's content with the plan, right? He all, you know, allows his concubine to be thrown out outside the door, and then he actually sleeps through the night while this is happening. Look at verse 27. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, I mean, you can just hear how heartless this is, right? Just no concern. To, to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. So it's, it's the woman, right? In, in, in this setting, in this, in this context, it's the one on the margins. The one without power is abused and victimized. She suffers as a result of other people's cowardice. She suffers from other, people's, uh, from other people's lust, from other people's abuse of power. And what's, her hands are on the threshold. It's a heartbreaking verse. Heartbreaking verse. Her hands are on the threshold. She's reaching, right? She's reaching for security. She's reaching for protection from her husband. She's reaching for justice, reaching for safety in the home, reaching for hope. And nothing and no one comes to her aid. She falls on the threshold. The text, I believe, intentionally leaves it vague as to whether or not she's dead in this moment. But then 29 happens. When he reached home, 
he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Again, you know, maybe she was dead before and he does this and sends it about. Maybe there's some sort of twisted shame, honor thing happening here, but he, he cuts the concubine up into 12 pieces and sends them to the 12 tribes of Israel. This, this is a call to arms. He's, he's calling all of Israel to unite against this atrocity that's happened. And sure enough, it generates a response. First verse of chapter 20, we see that all Israel assembles as one. Almost overnight, there's an army of 400,000 men who show up. And know this, this is the first time throughout the entire book of Judges where Israel is united. Doesn't happen with Samson with Gideon, with Deborah, none of the judges that we read, like they got one, or, they were leading one or two tribes. First time, all Israel is united is in response to what has happened. It's the death of this woman that has united Israel. It's the death of this woman that, is, that has united Israel. I say all, and scripture says all, it was every tribe but one, the tribe of Benjamin. The town that Gabeah, the town of Gabeah was in the land of Benjamin. And the Benjamites, they go the other direction. The Benjamites, they actually want to protect the men of Gabeah who've done this. The other tribes are like, hey, send them out. We'll deal with it accordingly. You know, they're, they're looking for a quick resolution. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're not going to give them over. And the Benjamites actually amass an army themselves. And so what you read in Judges 20, it's civil war within the nation of Israel. Civil war within the nation of Israel. The only time they are united, not against the Philistines. Let me say, the only time they are united before King Saul, King David. The only time they're united, not against the Philistines, not against the Canaanites, not against some group that attacks them from the outside. No, the only time they're united is when they're rising up to go against one of their own. Again, it is off the rails and broken. They're right, in a sense, to move to, to discipline to call out the evil within their own lands. But at no point do they stop and ask God how to do it. At no point do they seek the Lord's wisdom. At no point do they ask God what to do or how to do or how to respond. They think, we've got an army, we're going to war. We've got an army, we're, we're going into this. They stop long enough to ask God who should attack first. And in Judges 20, verse 18, we finally hear from the Lord when he says it's the tribe of Judah who should go first. And that makes sense in that the woman was from Bethlehem, which was within the tribe of Judah. And so it should be their role to help bring about the justice. However, other than that, there's no questioning of the Lord for his wisdom, for his protection, for his counsel, for any of it. So when they do set out to attack, their army of 400,000 actually suffers defeat. The army of the Benjamites, which was just over 26,000, they were able to kill 22,000 Israelites on the very first day of battle. Understandably so, after that defeat, they start to second-guess themselves. They're like, I don't know, is this really what we should be doing? They ask the Lord, is, is this what we do? And he says, yes, go up against the Benjamites. They return to battle, and on the second day of battle, they lose 18,000 soldiers. They suffer a second defeat. And after the second defeat, they come back and they weep, and they fast, and they make burnt offerings and sacrificial offerings before the Lord. And they ask him again, is this really what you want us to do? And he says, yes, go, I'll give them into your hands. And they go into battle, and they completely and utterly destroy destroyed the Benjamite army to where only about 600 soldiers were able to escape. But they don't stop there. 
They don't stop with just defeating the army. The Israelites go into all the land of Benjamin, not just Gibeah. They go into all the land of Benjamin and put every town to the sword. They kill all the men, all the women, all the children, all the animals in the land. They're they're looking to wipe Benjamin off the map. And at no point does God ever command them to do that. At no point does God ever say, hey, this is what I want you to do. At no point does he ever tell them to do this. They're doing what was right in their own eyes. They're doing as they saw fit. Now, if you've been with us earlier in the book of Judges, and then when we've done some some studies in the book of Joshua, there are times where God calls the Israelites uh, to to do that type of a thing against the Philistines or the Canaanites. And we've walked through how it was in judgment for their sin and and, and how God was using the Israelites to do that, and judgment for all sorts of evil practices they had done. And, And what's the irony of it is that so many times when God was commanding the Israelites to do this towards the Philistines or the Canaanites, they refused to do it. They would keep the cattle for themselves. They would save some of the women as, as, as uh, uh, brides for their own sons and daughters. Yet here, the one time they go through with it, the one time they're killing every man, woman, and child and animals within the land, it's happening against their own family because they're doing what, it, what they believe is right in their own eyes. Now, at this point, do we need a break? Because it's heavy all the way through. <laughs> like, like at, at this point, at this point, you think that's, that's got to be the end of it, right? Like they've defeated the army. They've, you know, put every town to the sword. Surely that's the end of it. I wish that it was. But the leaders of Israel finally understand just this egregious act that they're doing. And they see that they've almost wiped out the entire tribe of Benjamin. And they don't want them to cease to exist because that will diminish Israel. They need the tribe of Benjamin to come back and to grow and be strong. But there's a problem, because before they went to war with them, they took an oath that they wouldn't give any of their daughters in marriage to the sons of Benjamin. And so, but they've just killed all the women in the land of Benjamin. And so, like, if they need Benjamites to marry, to have children, to reproduce, to continue the lineage of Benjamin, they've got a problem. Like, where there's, where's there going to be women for wives to reproduce? I know that's very crass, and, uh, but, but that's the issue that they were, that they were facing. So what to do? what to do. Well, they pull the army, and they're able to determine that there were no men from the town of Jabesh Gilead showed up to help in that initial fight for Israel, to help in that initial war with the Benjamites. So in their mind, they believe a failure to show up is equivalent to betrayal of Israel. And so now the army of Israel goes and attacks Jabesh Gilead, another Israelite town. Their other brothers and sisters, when they go and they assault the town, they kill every male, they kill every woman who had ever been with a man. Once the battle was over, they take 400 young men, they take 400 young women to then go and be uh, and, and offer them as wives to the 600 Benjamite soldiers who escaped. But if you're doing math, we're still 200 short. They need 200 more women for, uh, to, to, uh, for the 600 Benjamite soldiers. Turns out they were having a festival to the Lord around Shiloh. I say it like that because it could have been, but a lot of scholars think that it wasn't. A lot of scholars think there was some sort of pagan ceremony that was happening in and around Shiloh. And they just said, oh no, it's really to the Lord. And so, but anyways, there's a gathering, some type of worship worship type event in and around Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh. And so they... Uh, <laughs> in and around Shiloh, and so they come up with a plan to give to the Benjamites. And this is where we're going to drop back in the, check, in the text. Judges 21, uh, verse 20. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. 
when the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you sees one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us the favor of helping them, because we did not get wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath, because you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their own tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. That's right. The plan was kidnapping, like endorsed, sanctioned kidnapping. When you see a woman, go kidnap her and take her to be your wife. Like, that was it. And I mean, just, I mean, like, I mean, I shouldn't be making light of it, but I was just trying to help us get through the text. Just imagine the fear of those women, right? They're, they're, they don't know this is happening. They don't know this agreement has, been, has, has taken place. They're kidnapped by the men who are defending the men who did the actions in Gabeah, Right? They wouldn't know that story. They would remember the pieces that were sent to all Israel. And now they're being kidnapped by, by the group that defended those individuals who did that. They're taken away from their families, taken away from all that they know, taken away from, from their home, from their place. And they're going to live in the land of Benjamin. Yet this was the plan. Why? In those days Israel had no king. And everyone did as they saw fit. In those days Israel had no king. And everyone did as they saw fit. Like I said, one sin after another. One expression of brokenness and evilness after another. There's virtually no redeeming action that takes place throughout all of it. And God is essentially silent throughout the entire interaction. Or so it seems. Or so it seems. Remember, I said the book of Judges is pointing us somewhere. It's setting the stage for, what to, for what's to come. It's letting us know the spiritual dysfunction within Israel. And this is letting us know they are in need of salvation. It will come temporarily in the form of King David, and it will come ultimately for all humanity in and through Christ Jesus, the King of Kings. But there are some textual clues in what we just read that draw our attention to what's to come, specifically in the book of Ruth and in the book of 1 Samuel. And it's going to also help underscore some of the tension in those accounts. Like I said, Judges is pointing us towards David, right? The book of Ruth is kind of the origin stories of David. It tells the story of Ruth and Boaz, how they came to be man and wife, and they're like the great-grandparents of David. So like the origin story of David is found in the book of Ruth. But Judges is really setting the stage for 1 Samuel. And that gives us the history of, of when Israel finally united as a king. And in a couple of weeks, when we start our study of 1 Samuel, we'll see that one of the first failed, that the first king of Israel is a failed king. And the failed king is King Saul. Saul is born of the tribe of Benjamin. So it means he's a descendant of these 600 soldiers who have the kidnapped wives. Saul also is born in the town and reigns from, of all the towns in Israel to reign from, guess where Saul is born and guess where he reigns? Wait for it, Gibeah. Gibeah, where this atrocity took place. And so like this judges, it's, it's, it's the prequel, if you will, to 1 Samuel. And so when, if you keep reading and you read in 1 Samuel, it says Saul, born of Benjamin. You're like, this isn't a good start for Saul. You know, reigning in Gibeah. Really, of all places, like it's, it's, it's telling us it's not going to go well for Saul. You wanted a human king and you were going to experience the, the sinful ramifications of a broken human king. 
the same time, at the same time, this is pointing us towards David. It's pointing us towards David, the first successful king of Israel, who unites the tribes, conquers the land, settles the land, and leads Israel to honor and serve the one true God by obeying his commands. Where's David born? He's born in Bethlehem, the hometown of the woman whose death united all Israel. Where does he reign from? Jebus turns Jerusalem. He reigns from Jerusalem. The city that the Levite would not stop would, would not would not stop because he didn't consider it to be a place of refuge. He didn't think it would be a place of welcoming. He didn't think it would be a place of hope. That becomes a place where David will reign over Israel. That will be the place where he serves the people and becomes the host of Israel. That's a place where under David's leadership, Israel will do not what is right in their own eyes, but they will follow the wisdom, the authority, and the direction of the Lord. For the first time, there's a sense of justice. There's a sense of peace. There's a sense of security. There's a sense of safety. There's a sense of, of comfort. There's an experience of hospitality for all, including the vulnerable, including those on, on, on the margins. Now, he's not perfect. We will see he's far from perfect. They will have times where, where he sins, where he abuses his power, where he victimizes a woman in her family. And we'll see that in David. But even in light of that, David, especially in comparison to other sinful, wicked kings, David comes back and sees how routinely he points to God as being the one who leads, as, to God as the one who guides, as, to God as the one who protects, and as God as the one who convicts him of his sin. Because when he does those atrocities, he feels the correction of the Lord, confesses them, repents, and leads Israel to come back and fall after the one true God. And so what you see with David as king, he's one who could boast in himself, but he's the one that testifies time and time again how the Lord is the one who has authority, how the Lord is the one who has guidance over his life. And as a result, he is able to rest easy. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's giving the picture of what happens when man submits to the authority and the guidance and the lordship and the rule of the Lord. The soul is replenished, cared for, and rests. There's no downward spiral into the depths of human depravity. Psalm 111.1, David knows that one day he too will be subject to one of his own offsprings. He says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Psalm 111 goes on to be, really be known as a messianic psalm or a prophetic psalm to where those who were looking for the Christ knew that the Christ would be born, uh, born of the family, would be a son of David, would be born of the line of David. And sure enough, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, part of the family of David, he's the one who fulfills the prophecy and becomes the greater successor of David. Not just as king of the Jews, not just as king over Israel, but Christ the king of kings. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? Those verses that we read in Philippians, those are, those are coronation verses. 
Those are verses where we're recognizing Christ as the reigning king. And what's interesting to me about it is that Paul gives those to the church in Philippi after he calls them to a way of living, after he calls them to a way of relating to those around, around them. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Okay, that's the exact opposite of what we read in Judges 19, 20, and 21, right? There's unity, there's wholeness, same mind, same love, not my own interest, but the interest of others. There's care and concern, the exact opposite. And Paul is calling them to this virtue. He's calling them to this ethic, saying that's what should be our attitude and our mindset because that's what it was of Christ. Verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality as God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. He's king of kings, but he leverages that power not for himself, but for the weak and the oppressed. He's king of kings, surrounded by glory, surrounded by perfection, surrounded by safety in heaven. But what does he do? He steps in the midst of our brokenness. He steps in the midst of our sinfulness. He steps in the midst of our evilness. When we're the ones banging on the door trying to satisfy our own whims and our desires, he left safety so that he could rescue us from our own depravity. He left safety so that he could rescue us from our sin. He left safety so so that he could rescue us from our doing what is right in our own eyes. Why? So that we could be with him. This is the action of our Lord, the action of our Savior, the action of our King who is King of kings. And if this is how he lived, right, with that mercy, with that compassion, with that empathy, with that redemptive work, if this is how he lived, how he served, and if we profess to follow him, then that virtue, that value, that ethic, that should be expressed in our actions daily. Because remember, Judges 19, 20, and 21 was not written about the pagans. It was written about the people of God. It was written about the people of God who lived as though they had no authority. They lived by their own whims, their own desires, and it brought about the downward spiral of destruction. Judges 19, 20, and 21 are perhaps the grimmest and darkest warnings we have against the depravity of the human soul. But even within them, there are signs of hope, redemption, and rescue. It was pointing towards a king who was coming. We know, both the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection, that the king has already come. The king has come who brings ultimate peace and hope and renewal. The king has come who practices a divine hospitality to welcome in the lost, to welcome in both the oppressed and the oppressor so that all can come out of their sin, all can come out of their shame, all can come out of their abuse, out of their longing, out of their hopelessness to find life and joy and rest and peace in the authority and in the provision of the king of kings. And so the question then that we're left with from these three chapters, and really the question that we have from the entire book of Judges is will you heed the warning? Will you heed the warning and live resting in the authority, the provision, and the protection of the King of Kings? 
or will you live as one who has no king? We know that Christ has come into this world. His reign and his rule is perfect. We are not promised a life free of hardship, but we are promised a fullness of life that is wrapped up in the meaningful, purposeful work of the kingdom of God. We are promised a life here and now that taps into why we are created. We are promised a life after death resting in the perfect kingdom of God. All of this made possible because of the work and the sacrifice of the King of Kings. Will we heed the warning and really hear the invitation to trust and live our lives in full view of the King of Kings? And lastly, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Some of you this morning might be feeling as though you are the woman reaching for the threshold. Some of you here might be feeling as though you're the one reaching for security, reaching for comfort, reaching for hope, reaching for salvation. Know this, God is the good father who never leaves or abandons. Christ is the faithful husband who sacrificed his life sacrificed his life so that his bride, the church, could live, so that you and I can experience the forgiveness of our sin and the salvation of our soul. Know that he is the reigning king of kings whose justice is pure, whose holiness is unrivaled, and whose provision is eternal. He is the king of kings who opens the door. He opens the door, welcomes in, and gives hope and life to all who enter in. I pray this morning you know the door's open. I pray that if you've walked through it, you turn and herald the message. It is open to any and to all so that we can walk through, know the good host, know the reigning king of kings, trust in him, and, 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 and live knowing that his provision is right, his words are true, and his commands lead us into life, hope, and joy. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you for a text. We thank you for a text that makes us do the hard work of, of, of looking into our own depravity. We see it set against the, the backdrop of history and people groups who lived years and years and years ago. But God, I pray that we wouldn't uh, be distant and think that there's no expressions of darkness in our own heart. But God, you would help us see that there are broken expressions of sin, times where we do what is right in our own eyes and we live as though we have no king. But God, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you that you are the King of Kings, that you are the good father, that you are the faithful husband who opened the door, who welcome in, who provide protection, salvation, redemption, and trust in you. And so God, I pray that we heed the warning. And more so than that, I pray that we respond to the invitation that you give us of, of being able to come to be a part of your kingdom, to live in view of your sovereignty, and to know that your authority is good for us, leading us to your glory and leading us to our good. God, we love you. We thank you for your word that teaches, corrects, rebukes, and leads us to life. God, help us live for you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.